Uh, all right, well, let's get started. Welcome to the Stand Fight Win live stream, Real Lawyers, Real Answers. And today we are talking about how you go about amending a trust or a will. And in particular, we're going to be talking a lot about handwritten amendments and handwritten changes and handwritten marks on documents. And that's really kind of the point I wanted to get into is so often we'll see people come in and somebody will make a trust, right? And then they don't want to go back to a lawyer to change it or whatever. Or maybe they don't have the time. Maybe they don't want to spend the money. I don't know what it is. And they'll just write, start writing all over it, changing it up as if it's a a letter that they want to edit or something like that. And it causes all kinds of problems. It does. And so the, we're, let's see if we can uh, kind of unpack the issue a little bit and we'll see when those types of changes can be enforced when they're not enforced and uh of course at the end we'll tell you why you shouldn't do it to begin with but right not that that'll change anything because people still will but at least you'll hear our opinion on it uh but let's start off with uh our breaking news we do have a case to go over today which is pena versus day i would think this would be pena versus day but it doesn't have the tilde over the end Maybe the court doesn't do that. You've got me. Court doesn't do till days. All right. Well, anyway, the site for this case is 39 Cal App 5th 546. That's 39 Cal App 5th 546, Pena versus Day. When, when was it decided? It was decided recently. Uh, see, do I have the date on here? It's it like came within out the last now. two months. Okay. Yeah. All right. I should have written the date down. Uh, when we get these printouts of the advanced uh, appellate cases, they don't have the site information on it yet. So I always have to wait a little bit to get the site information. Oh, this says it was filed August 30th. Okay, there it is. So it's a brand new case. Brand new. Yeah, hot off the presses. And in this case, somebody had done a trust and they had done it all the right ways with a lawyer and all that. And then they wanted to make some changes. And so what they did is they made what we call interlineation. So they actually crossed some things out. They added a few things. They wrote on the face of the trust document. Um, and then they took a post-it note and stuck it to the document uh, with a little note to their lawyer. Please make the changes that are, you know, that I have in here. And then they took that and they mailed it to their lawyer. So the post-it note that was stuck on top of the trust, by the way, they actually have it quoted here. It says, hi, Scott, who's the lawyer. Here they are. First one is 2004, second 2008. Enjoy, best, Rob. So that was the what he wrote on the post-it note, and then he said Rob. Uh, and so he just made those changes. The changes were typed up by the law office, but they had some questions. So they reached out to the client to ask them about some clarification. And the client, they talked to the client, and then the next day the client passes away. And so it's kind of all of a sudden. So the client never signs anything, never signs the amendments. So then there's a fight over whether or not the handwritten amendments or the handwritten changes on the trust uh, could be valid. So the court is going to look at the amendment provision of the trust naturally. What does it take to amend a trust? And generally speaking, what does it take to amend a trust? Well, it has to be done in writing more than likely, delivered to a trustee, and have a signature on it. Yeah, I mean, that's the basics, right? And you can add, some trusts will ha add different provisions to that, but by and large, that's what you need. And so looking at this, the uh, the court said, well, this is a writing. Writing on top of a trust document is a writing. It is um, delivered to the trustee because it's a set law and the trustee with the same person. Rob was both 
but it wasn't signed. He didn't sign the actual changes that he made on the document. And there was an argument that the one party made saying that, well, why can't they just adopt the signature that's on the trust already? Not the post-it note, but the signature that's on the trust. Why can't that just work for the changes? And the court said, well, because the changes that were made weren't there when the trust was originally signed. And so that signature will not help to authenticate the, ch the changed language that was printed on there. So you have to have a new signature. So even though the changes were made on the old trust, the court looks at those handwritten changes as if it's a whole different document, even though it's on the same document. And so it's its own separate writing in, in, a, in, in a sense. And so it has to have its own separate signature. It didn't have it. And then they also talked a little bit about the post-it note. Uh, but the court felt that the post-it note was not enough of a signature because it didn't help authenticate the actual changes that were on the trust document. Um, so really the problem all hinges on the fact that these changes simply weren't signed. And if they're not signed, then they're not valid. And that's, that's the end of the, the story on that one. So what are your, what are some of the thoughts that come to your mind after hearing about this case? Well, I'm instantly thinking about distinguishing facts. Like what, what if this person didn't have a lawyer and they had done the interlineations in handwriting on their trust and then put a post-it note on there and saying, here are the changes I'd like to my trust and sign their name and put it away in their office. Mm -hmm. Would that have been enough for a, a court to rule that, that, uh, that this was a valid trust amendment. And if that's the case, then the, the, the problem this guy did was he sent it to his lawyer and he wasn't as expressed in the post-it note maybe as, as he could have been. Well, and it's almost like the court got very, um, a little bit technical because the court specifically says about the post-it note that we cannot conclude these lines on the post-it note were part of the written instrument comprised of the amendment language such that the signature on the note effectively signed the interlineations. Instead, the post-it note is a separate writing that simply identifies the enclosed documents. So in other words, in the court's mind, there's the original trust, that's one writing. There's the changes that were made on the original trust, that's a sec second writing. And the post-it note is a third writing. Right. Well, that's a very kind of compartmentalized technical view of it, isn't it? It is. I mean, couldn't you say that? I, I can see what the court's doing here, though. I think this is a very conservative court. I don't know anything about the justices, but I'm assuming this is a conservative court that's looking at this and saying, look, we're going to open up Pandora's box, which I don't know what's in Pandora's box, but apparently Pandora. But uh, it's going to open up Pandora's box if we allow anything other than the black letter law. And that is you've got to have a... Uh, will, for instance, has to be witnessed by two independent witnesses, disinterested witnesses, and signed by the testator. A trust has to at least be executed with a signature, and then you look to the amendment or revocation provisions. You have to follow those to the T, and if you start allowing exceptions, uh, it causes problems down the road, because now there's an exception to every general rule that's out there. Right. The general rule is, let's follow the amendment procedure. You didn't follow your own amendment procedure. We're not going to rescue you at this point in time. Which, there, I mean, yeah, and I could see your point, and I think that that makes, I think it makes a lot of sense in terms of interpreting the law. It's just funny, because nowadays, you see appellate courts kind of go both ways, right? So some of them are kind of sticklers for let's stick to what the rules say, and if you don't meet it, you're out. Right. And then you see these cases where people kind of say, well, you have a note, the note has a signature on it, it is affixed to the document, that's close enough, let's let it through. So. 
it's just, it, it's, uh, I don't know if it's refreshing or just different to see a court that's a little bit more conservative because you, you don't tend to see those as much, uh, I feel like, in the recent appellate cases. I'm interested, is, is this something that the appellate court upheld from the court below? Yes. And so I wonder, what if the court below had decided it differently? What would the appellate court have done with it? And, you know, vast majority of the time, the appellate court's going to affirm the trial court if it can. Right. And so that's just kind of the it, way it works. It seemed to me that I, I, another thought I had was it seems that the post-it note has enough to incorporate by reference. Now, obviously, this appellate court didn't buy that and said, hey, the enclosed documents, which ones? Right. I would say the interlineated ones. That's the ones. Yes. But, but there is a little bit of a leap of not a leap of logic, but you definitely are taking a little bit more of a not a guess, but you're, you're having to speculate to some degree. Does the. In documents on the, in the envelope include the interlineations is it, and is this what the person intended? Right. Well, that takes an interpretation versus if you had followed the amendment process and you had delivered it, you had it in writing and you'd signed it, well, now, now we're going to go ahead and, and honor the amendment as it's drafted. And I think that's what the court ultimately is getting at too because there's also a sentence in here where they say that if the decedent intended the interlineations and the signature on the post-it note to amend the trust by themselves – there would have been no need for him to send it to his lawyer and ask the lawyer, please prepare an amendment for my signature. Right. And so I think you're right. I think the court didn't feel comfortable connecting the signature to the changes. Right. So so what this reminds me of is when we first partnered up in, I think it was 2008, you and I got into a really heated argument. I mean, it wasn't a mean argument. <laughs> I mean, we did say some pretty mean personal things about each other during the argument. But, <laughs> As we do in all arguments. Uh, but we got into a pretty hard argument over one of our cases that we were working on, and that had to do with whether a, um, a an amendment uh, that was typed up in an email and sent uh, out to all the beneficiaries. And then that person took that email and they uh, put a post-it note on top of it. And they actually, by the way, they, they did put their name in email. They did they sign it. Name. They yeah. typed their name. So, you know, and then they put a post-it note on top of the email, printed out the email, put a post-it note on top of it, laid it down on their desk. They died relatively quickly after that point in time. And, of course, people came and found this um, amendment that's an email with a post-it note. Almost, <laughs> it's almost right out of this case right here. And you and I, I was sitting here saying, I'm looking at that going, oh, well, this is this is definitely even his email and his signature in typed writing is enough to get this through. And you were like, no, it's not. And we really kind of had it out. And what was the outcome of that case? Well, we were both kind of right is the funny thing, because <laughs> I was right in the sense that the thing that he typed up and even though he typed in his name, that in and of itself is not a signature. And by the way, the amendment provision in that trust, the original trust, was a writing delivered to the trustee and, and signed. signed. That's it. So the whole issue was, what is a, what is a signature? Yes. Yeah. And um, it's funny because at the time we found out that there are other states that will allow a typed signature to be a signature if you can prove that nobody else had access to whatever the typing device is, whether it's a typewriter or a computer. Um, but in California, th there, that has never been decided. It's right. never been decided that that's a sufficient signature. And so, uh, you know, I would say it's not. You have to have a live signature in order to have a signature. Um, but your point to your point was, yes, but if you if that's the rule, you have to have a live signature. It, it um, thwarts his intent because his intent is so clear. He typed it up. It's right there. Right. Black and white. Right. But these signature rules are funny in the sense that sometimes they give you the wrong result when it comes to the intent, but we have to have some safeguard 
for what we deem to be a valid document, what we deem not to be a valid document. And so there, uh, the signature on the document, it, it, it was not signed, but the trial court there decided that the post-it note, the signature that he, he signed the post-it note and he affixed it to the document, the court said that's sufficient to incorporate into the document as a signed document, which is the very opposite of the case. And that's where I was, that's why I asked the question, what if the underlying court in this case, this most recent case had, had come out on the other side, would the appellate court have affirmed that decision? Our trial judge in that case said a post-it note on top of an email that's purportedly amending a trust, even though it wasn't the full name, it wasn't even the signature of this individual, it was just this person's first name. That's what it was, and it was written in handwriting, it was written in blue ink on a post-it note. That court said that was enough to be a signature. Now, I think the equities or the fairness was rightly decided there by our court because there were some facts, and I don't know what all the facts were in this new case you've gone over, but the facts in in our case, it kind of cried out for that result. Right. And then the other firm we were going against, they threatened to appeal. They didn't appeal. Yeah. And that was the result. But I wonder what would happen if this case would have been decided when we were having that case. Well, and his final changes weren't implemented. So whatever his final intent was, was not implemented here. Right. I mean, that was thwarted. So, and the other thing I guess I would say about our case that we had is the the the, the decedent didn't mail that to a lawyer and say, hey, type this up for my signature. Right. He just said, you know, he left it on the desk with his, the post-it note attached. So it, I guess you could argue that it's more likely that he meant that to be his final uh, intent and he affixed his signature to it versus here where somebody's saying, here's my changes, type this up and then give it to me. I'll look at it. And maybe I'll sign it. Right. So that could be a differing factor. But you never know. I mean, the court can go either way on that. Yeah. These are tough cases and just little things, little facts, little changes can change the entire result. And that's the problem with all this handwriting stuff. And we'll get into that a little bit. Let's go on to our uh, asked and answered and let's uh, get into some of these questions and we'll see just how confusing this can be sometimes. Our first question is, does a trust have to be notarized? It's not a, a question, question of, does a trust have to be notarized to be valid? Yes. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll tee this, this up for you, Keith. Okay. Because uh, this is a tough question, actually. It can it's a little be. tricky. It's a little tricky. It is. So we've had clients come into us and show us a copy of a trust for their mom or their dad that they, they don't like or an amendment they don't like and say, look, there's only a signature. There's no notarization. They didn't notarize this. So what's the rule? What's the general rule? Do trusts need to be notarized? to be created? The answer is no, they don't. So in order to create a trust, a written trust, you have to have something in writing and it has to be signed by the person who's creating it. There's a few other requirements to create a valid trust. You have to have a trust asset, what we call the race, which is just Latin for thing. You it's have to the have res, something. but he calls it race. Uh-huh. Yeah, the res, okay. <laughs> I didn't realize you spoke Latin, sorry. <laughs> And uh, you have to have a, a ascertainable beneficiary. You have to know who's going to get uh, be the beneficiary of these assets. And, and you have to have a trust creator, some, somebody who's creating it. And that's about it. And so if you have a document that's written and signed by the set lore, that's all you need to create a valid trust. So I guess that prompts the question, why is almost every trust you see notarized? What does notarization do 
for a trust, if you if it's not required to make a valid trust, why does everybody notarize trust? It brings some formality to the uh, the signing of the trust. It also, when there's a trust contest down the road, it's always nice to have a notary that says, yes, I was there, I saw this person sign it. So if there's questions of fraud- Or forgery. Or forgery or something along those lines, you have someone that can talk about those things. So people tend to notarize, but you're not required to do so. And I think forgery is probably the number one reason to notarize, right? Is not, not that it defeats every forgery claim, but at least it's strong evidence that it wasn't forged, but that's about the extent of it. What about trust amendments? So trust amendments can be a little bit of a trickier question even still. Because what do you have to do to amend a trust? You have to amend the trust either according to the probate code or according to the trust terms. And this is where notarization could be required. And now it's rare that you see this term, but sometimes it's not only do you need to have a writing, something in writing that we can all see, uh, delivered to the trustee and a wet signature, but sometimes you also need to have that notarized. And so that's where you can get into trouble. Creating an original trust, you're right. All you gotta do is have those three or four elements that are required to create a trust. You sign it, no notarization required. But you gotta pay attention to those amendment provisions. And if it calls yeah. for two signatures or five signatures, if it, if it gives you a maze that you have to complete before the amendment can take place, you've gotta do that. Yeah, it's very interesting because in California, when it comes to revocation, you can use either the probate code, which says that you have to have a writing signed by the set law delivered to the trustee, no notarization required, or you have to use the terms of the trust. And the terms of the trust could say uh, it has to be signed by the set law and notarized and delivered to the trustee. You have your choice there. But you have your choice on revocation. On amendments, if the trust has an amendment clause, that's the exclusive way to amend. Um, on revocations, you can use either unless the trust says that its terms are the exclusive method of revocation, which most of them don't. Right. Uh, but but just by virtue of having a method of amending, that makes it exclusive. So there's a little difference there. Just, but, to, just to be clear, a revoca revocation of a trust is destroying the trust. Yeah, it's, it, the trust is gone, right? Yeah, you're dissolving it, you're terminating An it. An amendment is changing just a few provisions, perhaps, in the distribution provisions of a trust. The trust still remains, it's just modified. Or even a restatement, forward. I would say, is an amendment. Okay. So yeah, you could even restate the thing and it's still an amendment. But um, yeah, an amendment is not that you're doing away with it. The original trust still stands. And it's tricky because you're right about, what, do, what would you say? Probably about half the trusts we review, and we re review thousands of trusts a year, about half of them probably might, maybe a little less than half, maybe 40% of them will say you have to have a writing that's no signed and notarized. Yes. So it's not uncommon. But that's because the trust provisions require it. It's not because some, you know, tenant of probate code law requires it. That's right. So you do have to follow the trust terms. All right. What's next, Kayla? What about wills? Do they have to be notarized? So this, this is actually, actually a good, good question. Um, and, and it's it's funny because I think we've had cases where we've seen wills where there'll be an independent witness signature and then there'll be a notarization from somebody else, right? Yeah. So the, I, I guess that's a little bit going a little bit deeper than the question, yeah. but let me ask you, do wills need to be notarized? No, they don't. And in fact, notaries aren't even supposed to notarize wills. Wills need two witnesses. That's it. People always go out and they notarize the will because they have this mentality of if you notarize something, somehow it sacred. Yeah, it becomes this legal sacred document that is uh, somehow risen up among you know, the legal world. 
you don't notarize wills, but the issue you are getting to is what if you have only one witness signature, which isn't enough to create a valid will, but then you have a notarization from a separate person. You could argue that that's a second witness and now you have two witnesses. And so that's one way to kind of cure that problem. But a lot of times you'll either see one witness, which doesn't work, or you'll see no witnesses. It'll just be a will that's notarized. No good. Cannot do it. One notarization won't do it. No. All right. Must have two witnesses. Can the handwritten changes made on an older trust document be validated somehow? Keith, I'm going to throw this one to you as well because I don't understand the question. And I know you guys, your team is the one that puts these questions together. So I'm not sure what you guys were getting at here. Well, two things. So one is if we look at the case that we went over, Pena versus Day, you know, those interlineations on the document where they made the changes, those probably would have been upheld had they been signed. So had the person actually put their signature next to the changes, there's a good chance that those would have been upheld. What if they initialed next to their changes? I don't, <laughs> I would argue it's not a signature because it's not. <laughs> it's a short signature? <laughs> no, it's not. And I don't know of any case law or any legal grounds that would say initials or signatures, they're not. Okay. So I don't think that that would work either. But um, this, this brings up a broader issue, though, which is why are you making changes by writing on your documents? Knock it off. Please don't do that. Even if you were to take out a scratch pad or a legal pad or, you know, a, a plain sheet of paper and say, this trust I created on this date, these are the changes I want to make to it, boom, 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 and signed it, that would be better than writing on the face of the document. It just drives me nuts that people do that. And it, it's not good. And you just just don't. Please. So I have a question for you. What if somebody adopted for their own signature their initials? And that way, every time they sign real estate forms or anything else, they're just signing their initials for their signature and their initials. And they do that for the next 15 years. So they do some interlineations and then they write either their initials or their signature, we're not clear which way does the court go then? It's hard to say. I mean, you'd have to take it in front of the judge and you have to argue what is a signature. And you know, that can get murky because a signature can be a, a lot of different things. But that person saying my initials are my signature and my signatures are my initials. If they've used them, but how many people use their initials as their Well, signature? that's what I'm saying. I'm gonna start doing that from this, <laughs> from this, this time forward. What I'm getting at is it, it could be, you could end up, I don't think most people do that. I do know there's one attorney that does that. He's a big PI attorney in LA and he, he signs all of his pleadings with his initials. Uh, um, so it, it just seems to me that there would be a case where maybe he was intending to sign his initials, but you can't tell the difference because, because the signature and the initials are the same. Could be. Yeah, it could be. But I think for most people, if you have a regular signature and then you go an initial, I don't think it's a signature. Well, I think everyone should just do their initial and their signature the same and then you're going to win this case. Yeah, it's also very easy to forge. Oh, well, okay. All right. Don't do that then. <laughs> All right. This is so the next. Why don't you give us the next question, question Kayla? Okay. Uh, can a trust be amended by a separate document that is handwritten? And that's, that's kind of what I was getting to in the last question. Take out a plain sheet of paper and, and write something. But what do you think about these, like if you were to do a handwritten amendment to a yeah, trust? It's dumb, but sure, yeah, you can do that all day long because that satisfies the writing requirement. It must be in writing. It doesn't say in toner writing. It says in writing, as long as it's delivered to the trustee, if that's what the, is required under the amendment provision, and then also signed with a wet signature. 
Uh, there's no problem with doing that. Again, that's not smart estate planning for the most part, but it'll work in a pinch, I guess. You know, I've seen, I don't know, how many uh, amendments have we seen over the years? Thousands upon thousands. And a lot of them, unfortunately, are handwritten. But there's only been one case I had, I remember, where it was this older lady and she was uh, she had worked at a le- as a legal secretary for many years. And she would do her own amendments to her trust. She did three of them. And she would handwrite them, handwrite them. And she had beautiful writing. And she did it verbatim the exact way that they should be done as if the lawyer had done it. Because the lawyer did the first one and then she did the she second one. She copied it, right? She copied it. And it was they were beautiful. They were a thing of beauty. But, um, and they were, you, they were legible and you could understand them and they didn't create any ambiguities and they were signed. But that's so rare. That's one example out of many, many years. And the problem is, is that people will write something and it makes sense to them, but it doesn't make sense to the people who ultimately have to interpret these things and apply them. The, ju- the courts, the judges, you know, the lawyers, we all have our own ideas of how these things work. And people can write things in a way that's subject to multiple interpretations and that causes all sorts of problems. So. Well, I'd go even further in the answer to this question to say that perhaps even a letter written to somebody could be an amendment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure could. I mean, the idea if I if you were my son and I wanted to disinherit you and I had you in my original trust and I sent you a letter telling you how disappointed I was in you and I didn't like you anymore. And from this day forward, you are no longer in my trust. I am hereby disinheriting you period, and I sign it, and I'm the set lore, have I not written, uh, satisfied every single amendment requirement to have that stand in as an amendment? Yeah, it's a writing. You're the set lore and the trustee, so it's delivered to you, and you signed it. So yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes we get lawyers on the other side of these issues that say, no, it has to be in a trust amendment. It's got to be a formal trust amendment. And no, it, it, doesn't. it doesn't. Yeah, no, it doesn't. All right, Caleb, what's our next one? How about a will? Can you have a handwritten codicil? So a handwritten amendment to a will, or we call them codicils, that's a good question, Keith. Uh, and there's pro- this is probably a good law school exam because it's a rich area, <laughs> but what do you think? Well, I, I would agree with your answer to the last question, which is it's dumb, but you can do it. And the difference is with um, with a, if the will is in the decedent's handwriting, you don't need any witnesses. It's what we call a holographic will. If the will's in somebody else's handwriting or typed on a computer or typewriter, um, then you still need the two witnesses. So technically you can have a handwritten will or a handwritten amendment to a will, but it falls into the same problems. It's prone to the same problems as a handwritten trust amendment, which is, is it really going to be enforceable in the sense, not because it's not an enforceable document because you hand wrote it, but because maybe it's not legible. Maybe we can't understand it. Uh, you know, for example, I had a case where somebody said, um, I want my kids to get my house, but my wife can live there. Okay. That brings up all sorts of questions. How long can the wife live there? Does she have a life estate for her entire life? Who's going to pay to maintain the place while she's living there? Does she have to do that? Do the kids have to do that? Can they sell the house? If so, does the wife get anything or does she get kicked out? There's all sorts of issues that left were left unsaid. It made sense to the person who wrote it. I'm giving my house to the kids, but my wife gets to live there. But it can't. It just can't be um, administered. And more than likely, what they meant was, my wife can live there for her lifetime, and when she's gone, it goes to the kids. But that's not expressed in the document. No, right? and that's the problem right. with these handwritten amendments. Right. Do trust amendments have to be witnessed? 
good old trust amendments again. So what happens if you have some witnesses on your trust amendments, Stuart? I mean, I guess you could if you wanted to. It's not required. It would be odd. I think it might raise issues of why do you have to have two witnesses when they're not required? Uh, but no, you, you general rule is you do not have to have uh, a trust amendment or even a trust document witnessed by anybody. You create that, uh, as we've talked about, with an original trust by signing it and having the requirements of, of forming a trust. And then any amendment after that, you simply have to follow the amendment procedure, which again, we've gone over three or four times here. It's usually gonna be a writing. It's gonna be uh, delivered to the trustee and a signature. So no, you do not have to have witnesses. You know, one of these days you you and I should do an amendment to our own trust and we should have it notarized, witnessed and get those uh, medallion signature guarantees. <laughs> what, about those, just, what about those medieval um, yeah, the, stamps the, with, the, the, with the wax? Yeah, yeah, that would we be, should just like yeah. do everything. <laughs> Signed, sealed, delivered, right? That's what they used to say. Next. Does a misspelling of the settler's name make the trust invalid? Well, not only a misspelling of the settler's name, misspellings of beneficiaries, misspellings of addresses for homes, you name it, you're going to come across misspellings. What do we do with those darn little problems? Um, more often than not, the court's going to um, still, it's not going to make the trust invalid is the first, most likely, unless it's just so horribly misspelled that you can't make sense of it. But no, it's not going to make the trust invalid. And what the court will have to do is they'll have to determine, well, okay, what did this person mean? Did they mean Stuart Anderson or did they mean Stuart Albertson? And it's like, well, if you're my only son, and I'm leaving everything, you know, I say I leave everything to my children and I leave my boat to my son, Stuart Anderson, when it's supposed to be Stuart Albertson. It's kind of obvious that, well, I don't have a son named Stuart Anderson. I don't have a son named Stuart Albertson either, but in this example, I would. So the court can interpret that and just and make it right. And so it's what we call a Scrivener's error. And so, in other words, there was an error uh, in the drafting of the document, but it's not going to invalidate anything. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, no, we see this all the time. In fact, I think the one we see is 123 Main Street when it's really 124 Main Street, you know, one house number apart. And I mean, clearly that's what they intended. And and it makes sense. The court's going to do everything they can. It's funny because there's time where, where the court will be very flexible and work with you. This is one of those times where the court will be flexible and work with you as opposed to a post-it note. Right. On where they're very rigid. Right. And they're not going to allow that. Right. In. Right. Yeah. So most of the time, these kind of mistakes. And in fact, I'm going to steal your thunder Kayla, the, the next question is, what about other inaccuracies such as uh, marriage, the number of marriage or the number of children you have? Chances are, who made those mistakes? The lawyer. Yeah. Yeah, the drafter, whoever the drafter was. And the client didn't catch it. Right. And Because sometimes you'll have a trust where it says, you know, I'm married when the person's actually single. None of that's going to invalidate the document because the document can still be applied and administered without those mistakes or even with those mistakes. It, it It's not... It's not relevant. Right. My mom crossed out a name on the trust but did not sign it. Is that a valid amendment? Yeah, yeah and I think, I think we've, we've seen in Pena versus Day that that's not going to be a valid amendment because it's simply not signed. Let's go to the next, next one. one. Okay. My mom told me she wanted to add me to the trust, but she never put that in writing. Can it be enforced? So... so this is an interesting one because we've had 
A fair number of cases, in fact. I remember one a few years back, potential clients, they lived next door to this gentleman. They took care of him. They did everything for him. He had no kids. He really had no family. He had some long-lost cousins. And so the guy was going to leave his house to these neighbors who were his good friends and caretakers. And he had a will drafted up to do that, but he never signed it before he passed away. And so their question is, that's what he wanted. How do we enforce it? You can't. You can't. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. You know that's what he wanted. Yeah. He told us that's what he wanted. No, because we don't know that's what he, he wanted. He had it typed up. Maybe deep down inside he didn't want it. And he just decided not to sign it. So this kind of gets to the heart of what a signature is then in the eyes of the law, isn't it? It's a blessing. It's your blessing something saying this is what I want. And it's not putting it on a post-it note or putting it on three post-it notes over here that somehow end up over here. It's on the document that says, this is what I want. So the signature is literally the keys to the kingdom. It is. And it's interesting because I think people find it very frustrating in a case like I just described, where it's like, but that's what he told us. And he even had it drafted up and yet he didn't sign it. And you could have 10 priests, uh, 10 rabbis, uh, <laughs> sound like I'm about to sell a joke. Yeah, uh, they joke, can all yeah. come to court and swear up and down that you know they they haven't lied in twenty years and they're not starting now and the judge can even say I believe everything you're telling me I believe you that this is what this person said they really 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 wanted you to have these assets right but they never did formalize that that's what they wanted so the law presumes that if if you don't sign it you don't want it and so okay this guy's told you he wanted to give you everything he even had it written up in a will but he never signed it and so that means he truly didn't want it that's right. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, and that's it's a, it it's a tough, it's tough medicine to take, but it's for the good of all the other people out there that actually do sign so that we know what an estate plan is and how it should be distributed. Yeah, and the same, and I'm going to do the same thing Stuart did earlier, Kayla, I'm going to steal your thunder in the next question, but, you know, the same thing goes for if a trust is drafted up, a trust amendment's drafted up by a lawyer, per the lawyer's instructions. The client's instructions. Uh, per the client's <laughs> Lawyers and stars. Maybe you shouldn't steal Kayla's thunder. Go ahead, Kayla. Why don't you ask us a question? <laughs> I think what Keith is trying to say is if a client instructs an attorney to draft a trust, but they don't sign the trust, the client doesn't sign the trust, is that a valid trust? And then the client dies, right? Before and the client dies. Okay. And so, so we've seen this a million times. We see this in, mal in legal potential legal malpractice cases too all the time. Right. And one thing we've learned is that, is the, first of all, is let's answer the question, and that is, what happens under this scenario? You have a client that directed it, directed their attorney, the will's sitting on the corner of the lawyer's desk, and the client croaks. Yes. What happens to the intended beneficiaries of that document? They are out, because without a signature, it don't count. And we've gone over that all, I think that's the theme of today, without yeah. that signature. So my question to you then is, is the lawyer, the drafting lawyer, somehow guilty or liable for legal malpractice, for not getting his client to sign the will? And the answer is no. That's right. And it's an absolute no. And that might be surprising. A lot of times people are surprised by that because what you'll end up with is somebody calls in and says, I want to make a change. And the lawyer, maybe they take a long time. And so maybe it's been a month or two when they finally get those changes done. And then the client dies right at the moment when they, you know, next day they're going to go in and sign it right. and then they pass away. And the reason why... Uh, the lawyer won't be held liable is that the appellate cases have held 
That is just too speculative. We have no way of knowing if the decedent would have signed this document had it been put in front of them. They might have made more edits. They might have made more edits, or they might have just not signed it, just like the case we talked about earlier, where if they didn't sign it, they didn't truly want it. We don't know if they would have signed it or not, and it'd be highly speculative to hold a lawyer liable for that. Uh, of course, a lot of times people will say, well, I know they would have signed it. Of course they would have signed it. They wanted it. They, were, they kept calling the lawyer's office multiple times saying, where's my trust amendment? I want to sign it. None of that matters because the lawyer is just not going to be liable in that situation. Surprising result, but yep, I it agree. kind of is, yeah. yeah. Okay, our last question for today is: What's the best way to amend my trust on my own if I don't want to pay for a lawyer? <laughs> All right, so we got somebody that wants to be economically conservative, yeah, and not pay for a professional to draft their amendment, codicil, whatever you want to call it. And so they're asking you right now, they're out there, that person, you know, what do I do, Keith? Yeah, well, first of all, obviously, I'd say don't do it. I mean, whatever money you think you're going to save by doing it yourself and having a non-lawyer do it, you're going to lose way more. Either you or your children or your beneficiaries are going to lose way more in the long run. So please don't do it. But of course, people will anyway. Um I mean, what is really the problem here? I mean, I think maybe people think it's so simple that they don't need the legal advice. Uh, maybe don't want to pay for the legal advice. If can I, can I throw something out there while you're thinking about this? Yeah, I think the same question. I, I think a question I could ask will make this a little bit clearer and sharper for the audience. And that is, what's the best way to perform your own surgery if you don't want to pay for a doctor? <laughs> So, like, you want to take out your own appendix? Yeah, if you want to do your... I mean, because you could. Yeah. I guess you could take out your own appendix free, if you had to. Free country. It's free. Yeah. doesn't cost anything right. other than, you know, listening to yourself right. yell. But. Well, first of all, you'll also... If you do that, you'll also save money on the anesthesiologist <laughs> because you true. can't be knocked out and take out your appendix at the same time. <laughs> well, that's true. So, you'd have to be able to, to take the pain. So, these are self-serving statements, but the same could be said about a surgeon that's taking out your appendix. They're being paid to take out your appendix. Right. A lawyer's being paid to make sure that your estate plan is drafted properly. Right. So if let's say that there's a screw up on your estate plan and it's clear by the intent that you intended people to have assets and a lawyer screws that up, well, at least now there's someone else to look at in getting damages. Not that you want to go around suing lawyers, but it, you know, if a lawyer messes it up, they'll they're gonna to have to make it right, either their insurance company or themselves, right? And here, what I hear this person saying is, I don't want to pay anything, but I want to amend my trust. It reminds me of somebody that wants to do their own appendectomy. It's not a good idea. It can be done, but it's not a good idea. Well, and if you go to a, a good trust lawyer who knows this area of the law, you're going to get a good amendment. If you go to just anybody, you know, there, there's a possibility. There are times when uh, lawyers draft bad amendments. But by and large, if you go to a trust lawyer who knows what they're doing, you're going to get a good amendment. If you don't want to do that, you're just taking a huge gamble. Um, you could handwrite it. You could type it up. We've talked about what makes a valid amendment throughout this uh, broadcast, so you can certainly follow that. But ultimately, the problem you're going to run into is making it understandable to the lawyers and judges and beneficiaries who ultimately have to read what you wrote and interpret it and apply it. And that's harder than you think. And I think that's where people really get in, into trouble. 
Well, my my amendment I just recently updated, and I'm giving everything to all of my friends who I love. <laughs> There's a law school case about how that's not a valid amendment. Why? Because we can't determine who you love. And I've been around you long yeah. enough to, to know that, you know, you may love no one. So... As sad as that is. That's that's an un unidentifiable class, I it's guess. It's unidentifiable, yes. Okay. It's like, you know, giving money to everyone my dog loves. That'd be everyone he sees. I like your dog. Well, see, there you go. Yeah, all right. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. Another uh, Stand Fight Win live stream. You can always catch a recorded version of this broadcast where we keep them on our YouTube channel and also on Facebook. And if you prefer to get an audio-only version of this broadcast, you can find that on